Well, welcome to Frontline. Did you guys get enough to eat this week? Yeah? Yeah, hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, thanks for joining us and being with us here for Thanksgiving weekend. Even if you're just in town uh, visiting family and, and friends, it's great to have you here. Uh, can we get the lights up? Actually, I think people are out here, but I can't see any of them. Sorry, I'm going to be really, it's Thanksgiving weekend. I can just be like that, right? That's okay. Um, it's great to see you. And uh, I want to just let you know about some things that are happening in our uh, community and our church community as we move forward into the month of December. Um, first of all, how many of you already have your tree up? I actually can't see you, so hopefully, I think there are probably some hands up that just went up. Uh, so you have your light, you have lights on your tree, you have, uh, you have, yeah, do it again for me here. How many of you, okay, you're already in that mode. You've been listening to Christmas music unashamedly all through the month of November, awesome. That's a lot of you, that's really good. You're going to be really excited about where we're heading next. Uh, in the month of December, we are going to be starting a, ser- a teaching series starting next Sunday, um, and it's going to be called The After Party, and we're going to be talking all about Christmas all about what it means to celebrate the birth of Christ, what that means for us. We're going to be looking in depth at the Christmas story, and so it's going to be a really exciting time. Um, and then I want to let you know we are planning three identical services that are actual Chris- Christmas services. If you didn't know, this uh, year, Christmas Eve, the 24th, is on a Sunday. And so what we've done is we've put together three services. So on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23rd, we're going to have two services, one at 4 o'clock, one at 6 p.m., And then on Sunday morning, December 24th, we are going to be having one big combined service at 10 a.m. And so uh, be thinking right now about about which service you would want to come to, and also be thinking about who you want to invite. This is a time of year where people are wide open to invites to come to church and experience uh, the celebration of Jesus. And so think about who you want to invite and bring with you for that. And I've heard rumors that for those services, we are going to be set up in the round and we're going to be worshiping kind of face-to-face for that service. And for the first time in a very, very long time, we are going to have real candles, actual fire. So <clears throat> some of you pyros out there are going to be really excited about that. Um, so these are, these are going to be great services. So be thinking now about which, ones, uh, that, which one of those that you'll uh, come to. Then also in the month of December, we get some of these unique opportunities for giving that happen as we kind of close out our year. And so today you may be sitting on it, if you haven't noticed, on, on each chair is an envelope that says a Christmas blessing. And this is something we do every year at the end of the year um, where we, we basically give to bless and encourage some families in our church that have maybe gone through a tough year or just need some extra help uh, during this season. And so uh, today is actually the last day to give to that. And so the display that's right out here, right outside these doors is where you can give to that because the giving is going to happen here in the next couple weeks. And in a moment, you're going to watch a video talking a little bit about uh, a Christmas blessing and what that is. And then also over the next few weeks, you're going to hear about um, an opportunity to give to something called Giving Ourselves Away, which is our missions emphasis as a church. It's how we literally give ourselves away outside the four walls of our church. And so uh, those opportunities are coming. And then last but not at all least, next Sunday, December 3rd, is Baptism Sunday. And Baptism Sunday is a big deal around here, if you could not tell from that scattered applause you just heard. Um, Baptism Sunday is is the, the moment where... Um, people go public with their faith in Jesus. So if you've made a commitment to trust in Jesus and to put your faith in him, uh, baptism is the way that you go public in front of your church community, and we celebrate that together. And so it's a, it's a really exciting time. And, and here's the truth. Um, we only have a few people signed up for baptism for next week. Uh, and yet I know there's, there's 
people who have made commitments to Christ, people who have stepped into a relationship with Jesus, and, and you're ready. You know it's time um, to do that. So I want to encourage you. Don't be nervous. Uh, you're going to have an entire church cheering you on. It's going to be a great day to celebrate. And what I'd love for you to do is if you're thinking about getting baptized, if you're ready to do that, I'd love for you even now to take out your phone and go to frontlinegr.com forward slash baptism. And just go there right now. There's, there's a way you can just fill out a form a little bit. And then if you fill that out, we'll connect with you this week and just make sure you're all set. Help uh, kind of alleviate any fears you might have about that day. Because our big thing is we just want people to take the step and go for it. And so any way we can help you do that, we want to. So please let us know if you're thinking about doing it. And we would love to uh, help you walk alongside you with that. It's going to be an incredible Sunday, an incredible day to experience baptism. Um, so with that being said, I'd love to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to uh, prepare ourselves to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. And I want to mention there are three ways to give. Uh, here as the buckets are passed, as well as online. Uh, online is probably the preferred way for us. Um, and, then, and then texting as well, any amount to that number. And as we're preparing, as the ushers are coming up, I want to just say this. I don't get to set up offering uh, every week, but it's Thanksgiving weekend, and I think it's appropriate. I just want to say, if you give here at Frontline, if you've been a part of Frontline for years and years, and you've been faithful in that way and just giving, uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we could not do what we do as a church without people who have just sacrificially and faithfully given. And so uh, I'm grateful, and just I'm grateful for the way, even the last few weeks, we've prayed and asked God to supply uh, and kind of fill in um, some gaps. And, and we feel like God has been answering those prayers and he's been answering them through the people of the church. And that's, that's an amazing thing for me to see as a pastor. And so I just want to say thank you. And um, let's pray. Let's, and then we'll get to watch that video for Christmas blessing. Lord Jesus, you say that we can come to you with any need we have. And so right now, God, we do that. Uh, we come to you with our needs. Uh, as your word says, we can cast our anxiety upon you. We can cast our cares upon you for you care for us. And uh, Father, we've seen you provide for us in times where it's been difficult. You, we've seen you provide when there's been a, a faith step you're calling us to take. And so again, God, uh, wherever each of us are in our individual lives, God, we know we can come to you with our need. Uh, and so God, we do that right now. We ask that you would be with us in every area of our lives. And as we give this morning, God, we give these gifts with uh, an attitude of cheerfulness, with an attitude of, of desire to want to be part of your kingdom work here on this earth. So would you take these gifts and these offerings and would you use them for the furthering of your kingdom here on earth so that in all of eternity we can be celebrating. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. My name is Sherry K. Sessions. I am the mother of Acresa and Jerry Sandalia and I've been attending Frontline for eight years. The biggest thing for me as a single mom and a mom of kids with special needs is I often feel alone in that journey. And when I received those gifts, um, when somebody came to my house or met me in the church lobby, it was just a reminder that I'm not alone. I'm not alone on this journey and, and somebody's always there and thinking about me, even though it doesn't always feel that way. That was just a nice reminder that we're thought of. Although the first year was fun, with all of the gift cards, it empowered me as a mom to be able to make choices and, and give back to my kids. And then I got the gift of watching my kids open something that I knew would be special to them. And so as a family, we were able to celebrate together. And for me as a single mom, who often doesn't receive gifts from the children, physical gifts, I got the gift of, of watching their faces when they open a gift that I chose for them. But I think people do think that it's 
Like when you think of Christmas, you think about the kids yeah. and miss sort of this, what's happening behind the scenes with the parents and how, how these gifts of the gift cards and the support then is such a gift to the parents and therefore the parents can enjoy Christmas morning and Christmas with the kids. And then that makes Christmas all that much better. You know what I mean? How, when you support the parents. I'm always grateful for the things that Frontline does for families and when we can come together as a community and support each other, it's, it's so much nicer knowing that it's people that I know, people that I see, and people that support me throughout the year are also the ones that I can go to at Christmas and are the ones that are getting the gift of giving to our family at Christmas too. Um, so I like having that connection and knowing that it's somebody that is there year round, not just somebody that is only there at Christmas time, but then you're not really sure who they are, or where they came from, but that it's somebody that you can have a relationship with year round. I'm Sherry K. Sessions and I'm a part of the Frontline family. Awesome. Our thanks to Sherry for being willing to, to uh, film that video. Uh, well, today, I, what we're, where we're going is I want to wrap up the series we've been working our way through called Netflix and Chill. And what we've been doing is we've been talking about sexuality in our culture. Um, and in case you didn't know, the phrase Netflix and Chill is a reference to sex. And so we've been talking about the messages that our culture has for us when it comes to sexuality and the messages that God has for us and the way that God wants to bless us when it comes to sexuality. And so to wrap up this series, uh, I want to end by talking a little bit about marriage and uh, what God has to say for us when it comes to sexuality in marriage. And marriage presents so many challenges. Maybe some of the greatest challenges that we face in our lives oftentimes come from the subject of marriage. Even if we're single, it's the subject of should I get married? Who should I get married to? Uh, but also, marriage also presents us with all kinds of opportunities to laugh at each other as well. And so there is a website that every year collects a whole bunch of tweets. They're literally, they go on Twitter and they do this segment call, called Married Life Perfectly Summed Up in Tweets. And so they just take a whole bunch of tweets that people have put out there about their marriage and they combine them. And I think that they're hilarious. And so I'm going to share a few with you. Hopefully you think they're hilarious too. Um, this one, uh, the guy says, you know what turns me on? How annoyed my wife gets when I try to hold her hand during our date to the supermarket. This is awesome. Next one, uh, the wife, she says, husband says, kids are still asleep. You know what that means? Me, we have to be quick. Runs to the hidden box of Cocoa Puffs and pours two big bowls. <laughs> Next one, wife, can you pick up milk? Me, lifts gallon. Yeah, it's easy. Wife, I mean from the store. Me, I would imagine it weighs the same there too. Helpful husband. Uh, this is my favorite one. Wife, opens first aid kit. Why would you fill it with Cheetos? Me, bleeding. It was funny at the time. <laughs> that is so something that would happen in my house. How to fold laundry like me. Number one, fold it in half. Number two, fold it in quarters. Number three, put it on the pile. Number four, watch as my wife angrily refolds it. <laughs> uh, him, I made a mess in the other room. Me, no response. Him, but don't worry, I brought down the vacuum for you. <laughs> nice. Uh, then this one, what are the three stages of sex after marriage? Try weekly, try weekly, and try weekly. 
marriage presents all kinds of challenges, but also there's something in us that desires the connection that the marriage relationship offers us. Uh, My schedule every year is full of people who want to get married and who want me to do their wedding. And yet if you think about like the statistics when it comes to marriage and divorce in our society, I mean, if you knew that one out of every two airplanes was going to crash, would you want to get on a plane? And, and yet, every year, people are just like running down that altar. I can't wait, or running down that aisle. I can't wait to get married. Uh, and so I think the reason for that, if you were here last week, John Gorvet, our South Campus pastor, talked about how at the deepest core of our beings, every single one of us as human beings, what we're really longing for is intimacy. Intimacy with another human being. It's what we're hardwired to want. It's the way we're built. It's the way God made us. We desire that intimacy and the marriage relationship is the relationship that, that we have as human beings that offers us the highest level of intimacy, the best chance at experiencing intimacy with another human being. And so uh, just so you know, the word intimacy is not code for sex. I, I've discovered a lot of people think that. And when you, when you say the word intimacy in church, people think, oh, well, they're talking about sex. Sex and intimacy are not the exact same thing. What I would say is great sex in a marriage is the outflow of great intimacy. In other words, great intimacy in a marriage is what actually produces uh, and and brings the result of great sex that's fulfilling for both people. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes, I just want to talk about some lies about sex that we believe that destroy our marriages. So these are lies um, that I think we believe a lot of times, whether you're single, whether you've been married for years, uh, and these are lies I've heard people say to me. These are things people believe, and and I've, I've heard Uh, People in this church even say, and and some of these are things I've believed at different points in my life, but I think there are lies that we believe in our world about sex that actually destroy the intimacy that that could be there in our marriage and could lead to really fulfilling sexual relationships. Um, So first one is this. Maybe you've heard this one. If things get tough, I must have chosen the wrong person. I think every married couple at some point in time, every married person has thought this. Man, if things get tough, if we hit a tough spot in our marriage where things aren't going well, I wonder if I chose the wrong person. I wonder if I just made the wrong choice somewhere. And and of course, the problem with this is that when you believe that, and and especially if you communicate that to the other person, what it does is it erodes, it creates this insecurity in the marriage where the other person feels like, uh, I've got to perform. I've got to actually, you know, I better perform, and if I don't, then then my spouse is just going to find somebody better. And when you have that kind of insecurity and that kind of uncertainty in a marriage, it erodes the trust and it takes away from the intimacy. Another lie people believe is this one. Eventually, I can change them. Specifically as it relates to sex, I've met couples where one person in the marriage or sometimes both use sex as a way to manipulate the other person, to try to get them to change. So in other words, I'll either give it or I'll withhold it based on whether you do what I want you to do or not. And of course, when this is happening in a marriage, it's not true intimacy that you're experiencing. And what it ends up doing is it leaves both people really unfulfilled. Neither person really ever experiences intimacy, the thing that we're longing for the most in our marriages when we go at it like that. Eventually, I'm going to change them. If I just withhold it, if I give it, if I, then, then they'll do what I want them to do. Next one. What my spouse doesn't know can't hurt them. We've spent a good deal of time talking about this lie in this series 
well, my spouse doesn't know, can't hurt them. This is the person that says, man, my, my spouse is not fulfilling my sexual needs. So therefore, I'm going to figure out a way to get those needs met kind of in secret on the side, whether it be through pornography, whether it be through another relationship, whatever. But the idea is, is what they don't know can't hurt them. I'm not mad at them. I'm not going to be mean to them. But, you know, I'm just going to get my sexual needs met over here. And what they don't know won't hurt them. The problem with that is it always hurts them. Even if the other person never finds out, it always affects the intimacy in the relationship. Another one that we believe a lot of times is that if I get married, it will solve all my sexual brokenness. I mean, I believe this one as a single person. Maybe some of you single people out there, you believe this. It's this idea that I've got this sexual brokenness in my life. I've got these things, that, these addictions and these patterns that are going on. If I just get married, if I just find the right person and I get married, it'll solve all my sexual brokenness. And only to discover that when you find that person and you get married, getting married doesn't solve your sexual brokenness. And now what happens is you've brought someone else into it. You've got someone else uh, now that's been brought into your sexual brokenness. So what we've said a couple weeks ago, we've just said so clearly is Jesus is the only one who can heal us of our sexual brokenness. God is our father and, and Jesus is the only one who can enter in and Jesus sets people free. Jesus heals marriages. I've seen him do it. I'm, I'm uh, walking proof that he can do it. Jesus enters in when we let him have our sexual brokenness and when we are experiencing intimacy with God first, that overflows into every other relationship in our lives. And it's through him that we can experience better relationships. Uh, another lie that we oftentimes believe is you have to try it before you buy it. It's another lie we believe as single people or, or in dating relationships. Like a bunch of you went to Black Friday, right? Went Black Friday shopping, you know, a couple days ago. If you didn't like something that you bought, all you do is you bring it back, right? You return it. You just bring it back to the store and you return it. And so there's that same kind of thinking, like, why would I get married to somebody if I don't know whether I'm sexually compatible with them or not? That's sort of the lie that's underneath this one. And so the, the thinking is, well, if I'm sexually compatible with this person, then when we get married, then we'll have intimacy. Then we'll have a great marriage. But actually, it doesn't work that way. The reverse is actually the truth. If you have great intimacy in a marriage, that's where great sex comes from. So, and when you try to discover whether you're sexually compatible with someone and build your marriage off of that, build a relationship off of that, it doesn't uh, deliver on what it promises and it doesn't lead to intimacy. It actually undermines and destroys the foundation of a relationship. And so I could go on and on and on. There's probably 20 more of these lies I've, I've heard, just lies about sex that we believe that destroy intimacy and in our marriages. But if I were to say, what's the common denominator? If you look at all of these lies, what's the underlying, what's the root What's the, what's the thing that, that kind of ties them all together? I would say it's this. Every lie that we believe about sex that destroys intimacy in our marriage, uh, in any marriage, begins uh, with me on a selfish quest to try to get my needs met. That's where every lie we believe begins. It starts with me looking at myself and going, how do I, how do I get my sexual needs met? If I have to have some secrets over here, fine. If I have to manipulate the other person to get them to do what I want them to do, if I have to threaten to, I'm going to leave if they don't because they're the wrong person, I chose the wrong person. It all, all those lies begin with me on a selfish quest to basically get my needs met. And when that's our starting place, when we start like that, it erodes trust and security in a marriage. And trust and security are what have to be there for intimacy to be developed in a, in a marriage relationship. Does that make sense? If you don't have that trust and that uh, security, 
intimacy can't get uh, started. So what I want to do, if I could for a moment, I want to take you to the city of Corinth. I want to take you on a little journey to the ancient city in Asia Minor of Corinth. And we're, because uh, the city of Corinth had some sexual lies that they believed. And if you're not familiar with it, in the New Testament, there are two books in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that were written by the Apostle Paul to the, the Jesus followers, a group of, of followers of Christ who were there in the church that Paul had helped start in the city of Corinth. So in this ancient city, there's this group of Jesus followers. They've, they've come together as a church, and Paul writes them letters, and they talk quite a bit in, in both those letters. There's quite a bit of reference to sex and sexual issues. So if I could, I just want to, before we dive into the scripture, I want to take you on a little journey to Corinth so you can understand a little bit of the culture and why Paul said some of the things he did and what people were into. Um, so Corinth, in the city of Corinth at this time, the Greek goddess Aphrodite was worshipped. Uh, Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty and sexual or romantic love. And Af Aphrodite was not just worshipped in Corinth. Uh, Aphrodite was actually the patron goddess of the city of Corinth. And so the temple that had been built to Aphrodite in Corinth was legendary. There's all kinds of ancient writings that reference the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. It was a very well-known area. And temple prostitutes that were there in, in the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth were supposedly these beautiful women. They were, they were known all throughout the ancient world as like the most beautiful women in the world. And sex with one of these temple prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite was supposed to provide like a mystical union with the goddess herself. So as like an act of worship, you would go and you would have sex with these temple prostitutes and it was like you were having sex with the goddess herself. It would unite you um, with the goddess. Now, uh, Corinth was actually a port city. So it was uh, along a trade route in the ancient world. So literally, there were constantly people coming, men who were coming off uh, like sailors that were coming to port and they were there in Corinth for a short period of time and then they were leaving. So there was this constant overturn of men coming through the city and men knew, in the ancient world, they knew they could find any kind of sex they wanted in the city of Corinth. Corinth, Because of the way that Aphrodite was worshipped and the way the city was set up, it was a major, sex was a major uh, part of their commerce. It was a major part of, of their city, of the infrastructure of their city. And literally, any kind of sex you, you want, you could get it in Corinth. Remember the first uh, sermon in this series? Remember the corn dog? When I, when I held up the corn dog? So Corinth was the kind of city that worshipped the corn dog version of sex. We said our culture has done the same thing with the corn dog that it's done with sex. It's taken something that's, that's harvested it from its natural form and then processed it highly and turned it into this very consistent, very cheap, very consumable form of food. And in many ways, Corinth had done the same thing with sex. It had become this very commercialized, very easily accessible thing. Now what's underneath that? If you think about the city of Corinth, what's underneath, uh, you know, the, the, the glitz and the glamour of the temple of Aphrodite, the truth is that Corinth's prostitutes, almost all of them were slaves, sex slaves, that had been purchased by wealthy Greeks and dedicated to the temple of Aphrodite as a form of religious offering. There's actually one source that, uh, that talked about how once a victorious athlete at the Olympic Games donated 100 women in a lump sum, 100 sex slaves, women. So these are people who are not there because they chose to be. They're in a form of sex trafficking and they're, they're against their wishes and they have to perform these sex acts. 
uh, sex also catered to men in the Greek and Roman culture. And so when you think about marriage, men would get married to women, but wives were oftentimes viewed as property because the view of women was so degraded in that culture. And so you would get married as a man um, for, the, for raising a family. You would get married just for the purpose of having sex to, in order to have children. But then men would seek out pleasurable sex with temple prostitutes and with uh, young boys. There's quite a bit of record of that. So in their culture, the sexual ethic had de- deteriorated to the point where they had basically embraced even pedophilia. and said even pedophilia is a legitimate form of sexuality. Uh, and we talked the first week of this series, if you remember, that in a culture where there is no moral authority, in a culture where there is, uh, there, where the highest ethic is, hey, you be you. Just express yourself sexually in any way that you want to. In fact, the worst thing anybody could ever do is to, to tell you that there's a right and a wrong way to express yourself sexually. In a culture where that's the, there's no moral authority and that's the sexual ethic, things trend downward toward more degrading and violent forms of sexuality and toward pedophilia and all different kinds of, of brokenness. It does, things don't just naturally drift upward to a higher standard of sexuality. And this is what, this is Corinth. This is the cesspool of sexuality that this group of Jesus followers are living in. And so I want you to listen to how Paul approaches the conversation of sex with this group of people in Corinth. This is the last verse of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. John, last week, read this verse. And Paul says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. I'll say it again. You do not belong to yourself. For God brought you, God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. So Paul began with this idea that our bodies don't belong to God. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought at a price. Your body is not your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, so therefore what do you do? You honor God with your body. That's what you do. And now, another lie that we believe in our culture, that we've heard in our culture, is this whole lie of, it's my body, my choice. You've heard this, right? It's my body, it's my choice. And what Paul would say is, no, no, no. Actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not your body, your choice. If you're a follower of Christ, your body belongs to God. It's not your body. Did you make it? Did you create it? No, you didn't do that. God did it. So your body is not your own. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what do you do? You honor God with your body. And that's where Paul began. Um, But Paul goes even a step further from there. And this is where I really want to go this morning. That's what I want you to see. Not only does he say that your body belongs to God if you're a follower of Jesus, but if you are married, if you're a married person, your body actually belongs to someone else. So he goes right on the next verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, here's what I love about this. If we could just kind of look at this. I love that Paul is so clearly answering questions that apparently the people in Corinth had written him in a letter. Did you get that in that first, regarding the questions you asked in your letter? So get a picture of this in your head. The people in the city of Corinth, in the church, wrote Paul a letter saying, hey, can we talk to you about sex? And Paul was like, absolutely, you can talk. In fact, I'll answer you in a letter that can be read then to all the churches 
So I'll do a sermon series on it. I'll let you hear it. Uh, there have been a couple people since we started the sermon series who have said, you know, I don't know that we really need to be talking about this in church. Like sexuality, we really need to be talking about that. Is that something that really needs to come up? I'm just saying it's right there in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Literally, this group of Jesus followers were like, can, writing their spiritual leader, can I, can I please ask you some questions about sex? And Paul felt like, absolutely, I'll answer them. And, and, and I'll, I'll let you uh, read those to all the rest of the church. And here's what he says. Um, he goes uh, the next step. And, and what, here's what's unfortunate. We don't have their letter, right? I wish we had. I would love to read that letter that they had written him. But we don't have the letter, but Paul does rephrase one of their questions. And the question he's rephrasing there is, is it just better not to have sex at all? Right? If I look at the culture, I look at how immoral everything is around me, the people in Corinth are literally saying, like, is it better just to swear off sex totally and be celibate? And of course, that's another lie that we believe because God created sex and he wants us to experience it. He wants us to enjoy it. So then he goes forward talking to husbands and wives and he says this, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what I want you to see here is you listen to the, these words that were just shared. This is not a picture of two people who are, say, who are starting with themselves on their own quest to get their own needs met. It's, it's not two people going, serve me, satisfy me, take care of my needs. This is two people who basically are, are saying, I'm third. How do I live my life when it comes to my sexuality? I'm third. My body belongs to God first. And then my body, if I'm married, belongs to my spouse second. And, or, or even if I hope to be married someday, my body belongs to my spouse second. I'm third. Me getting my needs met, that's, that comes third. I'm number three in this equation. It's God first and it's my spouse second. Everything I do should be for their benefit. Everything I do should be to satisfy and to protect my spouse. That's the way Paul talks about sex when it comes to marriage. I love this word authority, where, where Paul says um, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Authority is the Greek word exousia. Now, there are several different words uh, in the New Testament that refer to power or refer to authority. And exousia was actually a judicial term. Exousia means literally to have power over another person. It's this idea of like control or power or authority over another human being in a, in a judicial sense. So when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet and he says to them, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they, they lord it over their, their people and they exercise authority over their people, but not so with you. What he's, the word authority there is the word exousia. He, and Jesus says, what I would have you do is I would have you serve others. I would have you uh, come from the ground up and lift others up by serving them. That's the kind of authority you're to have. But in this context, Paul, using the word exousia, says that the husband gives authority. He gives exousia. He gives power and control over his body to his wife. And the wife gives authority, exousia, 
over her body to her husband. Um, so here's what I really want you to get from this. If you're taking notes, you might write down this phrase. In marriage, power is exchanged for intimacy. In a marriage, the way it works is power, authority, exousia is exchanged for intimacy. You can have power in your marriage or you can have intimacy, but you cannot have both at the same time. You can have power and control in your marriage or you can have intimacy. That's the choice you can make, but you cannot have both at the same time. So if you say, well, I want to have power, I'm gonna, I want to have power and authority over that other person, so I'll give sex or I'll withhold it based on what they do and whether they change to be the way I want them or not. That's great. You can have that power. You can hang on to that authority in your marriage, but you're not going to have intimacy. You're not going to have fulfillment. That thing that you crave and long for at the deepest level. As a husband, you can say, man, I, you know, my wife doesn't meet all my sexual needs, so I'm going to retain and hold on to the power and authority I have to live my own life. I'm going to be independent. I'm going to have this porn addiction on the side. I'm going to do these things over here. You can do that, and you can have that power and authority. You can hang on to that, but you'll never have intimacy. You'll never have the thing that's actually most satisfying and most fulfilling in any human relationship. You can have power. You can have intimacy. You cannot hang on to exousia and experience intimacy. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. It's, I'm third. My, my body belongs to God first. And we learn what sexual, we learn what intimacy really is from our relationship with God. And then if you're married or if you hope to be someday, my body belongs to my spouse second. I've really thought about uh, changing the marriage vows for the weddings I do. In fact, as soon as I say this, a bunch of you are going to like not want me to do your wedding anymore. Um, so uh, just this might help all of us. Um, but uh, there's a, I, I've often thought, man, you know, I love the wedding vows. I love, uh, I love doing weddings, by the way. Um, and when, when we're standing there, you know, the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom, and they're standing right in front of me. We go through the vows, and the vows are great. You know, in sickness and in health, and richer for poorer, they sound great, and they're, and they're great vows to take. But oftentimes, I'm like, man, if we could just get real, that would be helpful. And I want to turn to the bride, and I just want to say, do you promise to be sexually available to your husband until death do you part? And then I want to turn to the husband, and I want to say, do you promise to be emotionally available to your wife until death do you part? I feel like if we could change the vows and I could just do that and I could make them say that, man, people would be set up for a lot better, happier, more realistic marriage. You know what I'm saying? Oftentimes when I'm talking to wives and, and I'm trying to get them to understand this whole thing, I'll say like, imagine if he just never talked to you again. Like imagine if rest of your married life, he just never spoke a word ever again. And he never sat down and listened to you as you shared your heart and talked. Imagine if he just would, was never just emotionally present with you to share what he was feeling or to listen to you talk. And, and then to, oftentimes when I'm trying to get a husband to realize why he needs to be emotionally available to his wife in that way, I'll say, just like imagine if she just never was sexually available to you ever again. Like imagine if the rest of your life went by and like she was just never, like the planets had to be in perfect alignment for it to ever happen and she was just never sexually available. And oftentimes, if you can see it that way, what you can start to realize is I, when we approach it as I'm third, God ha gets to have my body first, and then my uh, authority has been given to my spouse to meet their needs in whatever way. My needs come third. And if both people can live that way and can have that kind of engagement with one another, 
it leads to intimacy and it leads to great sex in a marriage that's fulfilling for both people. Now here's the thing about this. Uh, love is risky. So some of you right now are sitting there saying, that's great, Brian. Sounds great. I'm third. But, but what about, the, what, what do I do in a situation where I, I was third and I honored God with my body first and then I honored my spouse with my body, but they did not reciprocate that. Uh, so if you've been lied to, if you've been cheated on, if you've been divorced, if you're on marriage number two or three and you've, you, the person didn't reciprocate, uh, I think those are some of the worst, most painful wounds we experience in this life. Uh, because the marriage relationship can offer us the highest level of intimacy and fulfillment with, as, that we can experience, it also can offer us the chance to be hurt at the deepest level too. I don't think there's any kind of betrayal that's worth it, worse, any kind of hurt that is worse than when we're hurt in that way. And so here's what I want you to hear. If that's you and if you're saying, man, you know, what, what about me? I, you know, I, I didn't get that, that same, you know, reciprocation. I, I decided to be third, but that didn't happen to me. What I would say to you is don't give up hope that God can start where you're at right now and give you something new in the future. Okay? Don't give up hope that God can restore marriages. I, I'm telling you, he can do it. Don't give up hope that God can heal sexual brokenness and past wounds. Don't give up hope that God can give you a marriage. Or if you're a single person, don't give up hope that God can bring somebody into your life that is a godly person, that will pursue you in the right way, in a godly way. You don't have to go to a bar and just sell yourself short just to hope to find intimacy someday. Don't give up hope that, that it can't happen to you. It can and Jesus can do that. He can bring that kind of thing into our lives. But how do we get there? We honor God first, and we make a commitment to honor our spouse second. We come third. So um, if I could ask, ask you a few application questions. Um, if, you're, if you're thinking about power being exchanged for intimacy, what sacrifice have you made for your spouse recently? If you're a married person, I mean, can you think of a specific example where you, where you came second or third? Do you think of a sacrifice you made for your spouse recently, specifically? Next. Um, how have you given up your rights to serve your spouse lately? Can you think of a specific example, sometime even recently, where you said, I'm going to set my rights down. I have a right to demand this or that, but I'm not going to go into that control mechanism. I'm not going to start with me on a selfish quest to try to get my needs met first. When, when is the way that you've given up your rights recently so that you could serve your spouse? And then third, whether you're married or, or single, how are you investing in your relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or your marriage now that will pay dividends later? How are, how are you investing right now in a way that will pay dividends later in your life? Um, I hear so often people say, well, you know, we're just not in love anymore. Like married couples, they're going through a divorce. Like, well, you know, we just got to a point where we're just not in love anymore. And every time I hear people say that, I just want to say, well, when did you stop doing the things that you did that helped you grow love in the first place in your marriage, right? And it's, and it's not rocket science. Like, go back and do those things. Pursue each other. Listen to each other. Uh, apologize and ask forgiveness from each other. And then get naked with each other. <laughs> I mean, this is not hard. And this is, this is oftentimes where we find ourselves. 
So I want to close um, with this, and I've, I've shared this story one time before. I was, uh, a few years ago, I was asked to do my cousin's wedding. And it's always weird as a pastor when you go to do a family member's wedding because you have all these extended family members there and you're a son and a brother and a, you know, all, all these, a cousin, but you're also the pastor. And so I, I did this wedding for my cousin and then we were at the reception afterwards. And uh, the DJ did that thing where he said, all right, all the couples, all the married couples out on the dance floor. And so um, we all kind of went out on the dance floor and the DJ starts the song. And you've all seen this. If you've been to weddings, you've seen this thing happen uh, where the DJ literally says, you know, a few minutes into this song, he says, okay, everybody who's been married five years or less, go sit down. And in my family, there's been a lot of divorce. There's been a lot of uh, sexual brokenness and just relationship explosions and baggage that have happened in, in my extended family. So five years or less, and literally like half the, half the floor just clears out. People go sit down. Carrie and I are out there dancing. And then the DJ says, 10 years or less, go sit down. And a whole bunch more people go and sit down. So few marriages have lasted in my family. He goes, 15 years. And at that point, this was a few years ago. Carrie and I have been married 19 years. But at that point, 15 years was our limit. So we went and sat down. And literally, he says, 20 years or less. And now it's down literally to one couple on the dance floor. It's my parents my mom and dad. And I'm sitting there with Carrie and I'm watching and the DJ just keeps going, 20 years, 25 years, and my parents are still dancing. 30 years, 35 years, 40 years, and they just keep dancing. It was a profound moment for me, my friends. I literally just sat there watching them with tears streaming down my face because I know what it took to get there. I've shared with you that there was a point in my parents' marriage where they almost didn't make it. And there was a lot of brokenness. And uh, I am, I got a front row seat. I'm living proof watching them that the spiritual transformation that happened in their lives and that happened in their marriage, that Jesus can turn things around. He can set people free and he can redeem marriages. And I remember just sitting there with, with my wife, just holding her hand, watching my parents dance and just going, wow, the legacy I have been given by my parents. And when things got tough with my wife and I, when things hit a wall and my own sexual brokenness had popped, you know, to the surface, that I had this example to look at in them. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because some of you right now are sitting there going, well, that's nice, but that's never going to be me. I'm never going to be the last one on the, out on the dance floor. I'm on marriage number two. I'm on marriage number three. I've had all this stuff happen in my life, all this brokenness. That's great that that happened for you or for your parents, but that, that's not ever going to be me. Here's what I want you to hear as we close out this series. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't even matter what your present is right now, what you're going through. Any one of us can start from this day right now, and any one of us can finish strong any one of us can allow God to have access to say, I'm third. Jesus, you have, you, you have authority over my life. I surrender my life to you. you. You have authority over my body and my spouse gets second. Anybody can start where they're at right now and finish strong. My race in many ways as a husband has not been all that admirable. But I am determined to finish it strong. 
I am determined to finish that race strong. And by God's grace, I am right now. I, I said to you a couple weeks ago, right now, Carrie and I are in the best season of our marriage we've ever experienced in 19 years. And that goes back and includes all the stuff before all the brokenness that happened in our marriage. Any one of us can finish strong. Give up your authority. Give up your rights. Say to God, I'm, I come third. I'm not going to be on this selfish quest to get my needs met anymore. It's authority to God first, and then it's authority given to my spouse second. I want to just uh, end by closing with a, saying a prayer, and then we're going to sing. So would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we all bring history into this conversation. We bring a past. We bring a backstory into conversations about commitment, sexuality, and intimacy. So God, this morning, we just want to come against the lies. I just want to come against the lies in the name of Jesus that this is just the way it is that if I just keep trying to get my own needs met my own way, independent from God, independent from you, independent from the way you've called me to live, then eventually I'm going to find my own happiness. God, we just come against those lies right now in the name of Jesus, and we just recognize that you've come to set us free. You've come to give us a new life that's, that's better than our normal, a new that, that absolutely is better than our normal. And I pray that you would do that. We need to just begin with us and just say, I just give you my life first and foremost. Surrender my life to you as Lord and Savior. And then for whether we're married or whether we're single, to say, I'm going to commit now. My body is going to belong to my spouse. And I pray, God, that you would begin to enter in, that would you transform marriages even in this room, God? Would you transform brokenness and pain and betrayal and woundedness and baggage from divorces and from uh, lies that have been told and cheating that's happened? And would you just bring healing and grace and wholeness into that? We know that you can do that. So God, we receive that. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the grace that is truly greater than all of our sin. In Jesus' name, everyone said.